Well, good morning. As I, as I said in the, my email announcement for the message today, this is probably the most important of the entire Old Testament series that I've been speaking on. And that's out of 55 parts so far. And so if you're here, you've come to the right, the right sermon. And today we're going to be talking about the living in the freedom of the new covenant, particularly looking at Genesis 15 and then uh, referencing uh, Jeremiah 31 and uh, Hebrews 8. So uh, Martin Luther was a priest in Germany around 500 years ago. And he was constantly driven by guilt. And he was told that to get rid of his guilt, he had to confess it to a confessor and then uh, do the penances that he was given to do. And he was constantly terrified that he'd missed something out. And so he would sometimes spend up to five hours a day confessing his sins trying to think, and he'd just about finished, oh no, there's something else, and he would drive the priest crazy who he was confessing to. They would get so cross with him, but he was terrified that he'd missed something and, and he wouldn't be forgiven. And he was in this, he was, and he carried this weight for years. And the penances they would give him, sometimes they would be to beat his body or to, to, to stay out in the cold without, without proper clothing or things to, to hurt himself, to somehow carry the weight of this sin. And he would do twice what he was told to do. The, um, then he decided that he would read the Bible. He found a Bible. It was very rare for priests in those days to read the Bible, but he found one. And one day he was reading some verses which totally transformed his whole life. Suddenly he was free from guilt and he was flooded with joy. And these are the things we're going to be looking at today. And hopefully we're going to have some some joy ourselves as we really understand what God is saying to us through these things. So I believe that many of us could have more more freedom and joy in our lives if we truly understand what Luther did. And um, most of us have an inner bully who's constantly telling us that we're not good enough, we're not working hard enough, we're not doing well enough, um, we're full of flaws, and uh, other people may not see these flaws, but we see them, and we beat ourselves up about these things. And this was Luther's problem, and this is one of the things that today's message is going to address. So I want to do three things today. I want to look at the covenant with Abraham, and we're going to have some fun with that, as you'll see in a minute. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the first thing is, the question is, what is a covenant? And uh, the Bible talks about covenants. And in recent years, archaeology has helped us immensely as we've discovered covenants from surrounding cultures around the, the uh, time of, in the New Testament, sorry, the Old Testament times. And um, uh, we're going to be looking at the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and we're going to read a passage um, about God making a covenant, but there are some things that might seem strange to you in the way that it happens in Genesis 15, but actually they were the normal 
part of the covenant, like, for example, the way they cut up animals. Um, In ancient times, let me give an example of how a covenant might be made. Supposing a king goes to war against another king of a smaller nation, and the, the, uh, the other king surrenders, and they make what we call nowadays a treaty. But it would be kind of worded very differently to the kind of treaty the way we would do nowadays, because it would be much more in relational terms. <clears throat> it's quite interesting that we've discovered, um, a, <clears throat> we've actually discovered this is a covenant, and it's quite, it's called the Hittite Treaty of Kadesh, and it was on clay tablets, uh, 1259 BC. And what's remarkable about it is we have both copies of the treaty, one from Egypt, and one from the Hittite nation, which are north north of Lebanon. Because when you made a covenant, you had two copies, and both sides took a copy away. And we actually have both of these. And it's quite extraordinary. Um, There was a war, a battle between uh, the Hittites and the Egyptians, and it wasn't conclusive. Neither side won. And so they decided to make an agreement together and... It's actually symmetrical in their obligations to one another. Um, they would, they would, um, they would uh, commit to defending one another's territories, to being friends, and so on. And the things they committed to with this covenant. But very often, you got a stronger nation against a smaller nation, and the covenant might have something like promising you to pay a thousand talents of gold every year. I promise to be loyal to you. Um, if you're attacked, I promise to defend you. Sometimes there's father-son language, like the the, uh, the stronger party speaks as the other one like their son. But then what happened was, when they'd agreed this covenant, they wouldn't sign, like nowadays we sign contracts. What they would do is uh, something very different. They would take animals and cut these animals in half and put the two halves out in a corridor, and then both parties would walk between those cut animals. Now, can anybody suggest what this might be symbolizing? This action of walking between the cut animals. Anybody want to guess? Yeah? You're exactly right. If, if What they're saying is, if I break the covenant, may I become like these animals. It was, they would also put these in, this in words. They would say, you know, uh, if I fail to do this, may my gods, you know, do this to me. And there will be kind of all kinds of what they call, the technical term is self-maledictory oaths. Something that, that you say, if I fail to do this, may this bad thing happen to me. So walking to the pit through the pieces is a very serious-minded way of saying, This is uh, something which I'm so serious about. I'm, you know, may this happen to me if I fail to commit this. Um, And uh, so my definition of a covenant is a forever relationship with serious commitments. We find a number of covenants, many covenants in the Bible. For example, there's one covenant when Abraham makes a covenant about a well that somebody else has, and they agree that this well is going to belong to Abraham. Um, there's some more serious covenants as well. But nowadays, the only thing that we have in our culture that is similar would be a wedding, 
where you're making a serious commitment, you're agreeing to, to a relationship for life. We don't cut up animals at weddings, though, do we? Have you noticed that? <laughs> Just cake, yes. Um, and uh, also adoption would be a similar kind of thing in our culture. Um, so it's not merely a legal contract, but it's something which is it's a bond together. And there's a word that's used in covenant, which often we misunderstand. The word is is righteous. And to to be righteous, it doesn't mean you're good or you you know you you. We, we tend to use it nowadays. It means you've kept the commitment of the of that covenant. You've kept what was required of you in that covenant. So, for example, Cece agreed that she would bring the food today, and and she's shown up with the food. So she is righteous as far as this this uh, the, the her covenant commitment is concerned. Now we didn't make some covenant with her beforehand that she'd do it. She just emailed, but but that you know you get the idea that righteousness is fulfilling the commitments that that are within that covenant. So righteousness is a covenant um, concept. And um, so what we're going to do now, we're going to have a little bit of fun now, and I'm going to ask Abraham and God to come out here, and we're going to go through this passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, So, there we go. Now, I'm going to read the part of the narrator. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I continue to be childless and my heir is Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham added, Since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. But look, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Gaze into the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, So will your descendants be. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted his response of faith as a righteousness. The Lord said to him, I... I am the Lord who brought you out from all of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, by what can I know that I am to possess it? The Lord said to him, Take for me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, and along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham took all these for him. And then cut them in two. That's the heifer. And placed each half opposite the other. The heifer, the goat, and the ram. 
but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abraham drove them away. (laughs) When the sun went down, Abraham fell sound asleep. Then a great terror overwhelmed him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation that they will serve. Afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot with a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. That day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your descendants, I'll give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Thank you. So, I want to thank our two, our two participants there, um, who are um, demonstrating to us this, this very visual enactment. And I wanted to act it out like this because it's really important that we see one key striking thing about how this covenant was made, which was extraordinary, which even like even as I think about it, it's hard for me to to actually grasp the, the power of it. And, the, and that's this. Who went between the pieces? God, symbolized by the smoking torch. What about Abraham? What were his commitments in this covenant? What did he have to do? Nothing. No commitment. He was off the hook. He didn't have to do anything. In fact, he'd already done it. What was it? He'd believed. He trusted. He'd believed that what God was saying was right. And that was the righteousness that God was looking for and God accepted. Now, I want to just note that this was a special covenant that God made. It's not the old covenant or the new covenant, but it is the basis for the new covenant, as I'll show in a minute. So the covenant that we just read about was the original covenant with Abraham. God made, God um, uh, renewed it a few times after that, but this was the the original picture. So this covenant, the extraordinary thing about this covenant, two things. One is that it was one-sided completely. And we do find some ancient uh, covenants that are one-sided. This is completely one-sided. God is the only one with obligations and God has commitments. You could argue that Abraham had already done his part, which was faith, and that would be true. The other thing, though, that's absolutely extraordinary is that God should actually walk between the pieces and say, may I cease to be God? May I cease to exist if I fail to do this for you, Abraham? 
Why did he do that? Because he saw that Abraham needed it. He needed some certainty. He was, he was going weak in his faith and he was just, and God was so, if you want to use the word empathic for God who knows everything, God actually saw that this would be the surest way he could speak life and hope and joy into Abraham, that he would never forget this moment. He would never forget that God himself had committed that he would cease to exist if he failed to keep this promise. And uh, this, so, so this is the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant in, with Abraham in Genesis 15. And now we're going to look at the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, and then we'll finish by looking at the new covenant. So the old covenant. So God made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament uh, times, and he gave them a lot of laws and commandments. And it was went something like this. If you keep these things, you'll get financial blessing, you'll get health and long life, you'll get lots of children. If you break them, you'll get punishment, you'll get uh, good things taken away, and ultimately the nation will be destroyed. They'll be taken into captivity. It was all based on performance. Now, of course, it it was gracious because it was gracious that God should do anything with them, but they were undeserving. But that's different to saying it was a covenant of grace. It was not a covenant of grace. Um, And the other thing is it was mostly external. Most of the blessings were actually like financial blessings or material blessings. And unfortunately, the prosperity gospel will quote verses from this, but they won't quote from the curses, which are there in parallel. Because, you know, it's part of of a covenant package. Um, and of course, we get better better promises in the new covenant anyway. Um, so what does it mean to be living under the old covenant? It means that God relates as an authority figure who will judge you if you fail. They never called God Abba, which is the word for daddy. It was it was father, but in a, a formal sense. And there were blessings and cursings. And I'm just going to give you an example. Deuteronomy 28, we get um, a repeat enactment of, of some of the laws being summarized. But these are the laws from Sinai, from Exodus. And I'm going to read a few just to give you the idea. There are chapters of these. If you indeed obey the Lord your God and are careful to observe all his commandments I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will elevate you above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come to you in abundance if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Your children will be blessed as well as the produce of your soil, the offspring of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your mixing bowl will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come out, blessed when you, blessed when you come in, blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who attack you to be struck down before you. They will attack you from one direction, but flee from you in seven different directions. The Lord will decree blessings for you with respect to your barns and in everything you do. Yes, he'll bless you in the lands he's giving you. And so it goes on. Just we're going to skip to verse 15. But if you ignore the Lord your God and are not careful to keep all his commandments and statutes I'm giving you today, then all these curses will come 
upon you in full force. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the field. Your basket in your mixing bowl will be cursed. Your children will be cursed as well as the produce of your soil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you a curse, confusing you and opposing you in everything you undertake until you're destroyed and quickly perish because of the evil of your deeds in, in that you've forsaken me. The Lord will plague you with deadly disease until he's completely removed you from the land you're about to possess. He'll afflict you with weakness, fever, inflammation, infection, sore blight, and mildew. These will attack you until you perish. The sky above your heads will be bronze and the earth beneath you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust and it will come down on you from the sky until you are destroyed. Does that sound good? Who wants to live under the old covenant? I don't seem to have many takers here. Uh, now, in fact, um, humanly speaking, it was impossible for them to completely, completely uh, obey all of the law. I mean, technically you could, but because we're fallible humans, it really wasn't feasible. Uh, in practice, God didn't enact all these bad things in the way he had the right to. This is asserting God's rights to do this. In practice, you think of David who committed adultery and murder and God didn't enact the punishment which was due to him. God showed him grace. God usually showed much more grace than was due under this covenant. Um, but the purpose of the covenant was really to show that we cannot be saved by our own performance. It was to show that if you think you can you can please God by doing enough things, you're you're wrong. You can only be saved by grace. Um, and so, what happened with the nation of Israel in the end, after being far more patient than the covenant demanded, God took them into captivity for a period of time, which which purified them. So that is the old covenant what the New Testament calls the Old Covenant, sometimes called the Sinai Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, names like that. Now we're going to come on, we're going to finish by talking about the New Covenant. Jeremiah prophesies that God is going to do something new and different. He's going to replace the Old Covenant with a new one that has a completely different way of God, of human beings relating to God. And this is what Martin Luther discovered. To be a Christian is to be part of this new covenant. Now, this was God's plan all along, actually. And as I said, the purpose of the old covenant was, in fact, to teach them that they needed grace, that they needed the new and one of the clearest places it's described in the Bible is the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31. It's introduced in Hebrew. I'm just going to read an introduction to it in Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 8. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is based on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God says to them, and now we have the quote from Jeremiah 31, which I'm going to read to you. 
Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My, my covenant that they broke. But this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And now there are four promises. And next week, I'm going to do part two of what I'm doing today and unpack what the new covenant is. But here is the, my summary. And the, the gray panel down the left is my words. That isn't inspired. The, that's my summary. The, the right hand is the scriptures. And this is Jeremiah. I will put my laws in their minds and I will inscribe them on their hearts. So that's God's law on our hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's, we, he belongs to us. We belong to him. Like language, a little bit like Song of Solomon. Uh, then there will be, there will be no need at all for each one of us to teach his countrymen or each one to teach his brother saying, know the Lord, since they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So there's no need for priests between us and God. And then the last one, for I will be merciful towards the evil deeds and their sins, I will remember no more. So I, I'm going to deal with all of these next week, but I really want to focus on the, the, the last one, which is our sins are forgiven. Now, in the old covenant, you could never be sure that you'd kept even the most basic laws, you couldn't be sure that you'd actually done them perfectly. You wouldn't have assurance and say, I know that God will accept me. And so there was this slight level of uncertainty. And I would say that um, many of us today live under a condemnation that we are carrying guilt, uh, we are in, in carrying anxiety over the failures that we know we have, we feel inadequate. We feel that we're failing all the time and uh, a sense that God is angry and judging us. We're seeing um, uh, increasing problems in these days with um, with mental health, with, with people struggling with anxiety and many, many other issues, self-harming, eating disorders, you name it, they're on the increase. And some of the best work I've seen in psychology has said that underneath this all is a feeling of, of, I'm worthless, I'm useless. If people saw what I was really like, and there's like this brutal inner bully that's hitting you down and saying, you're bad, you're a failure. Who are you trying to kid? You're, you're bad. And this underlying self-condemnation are the root of so much anxiety and mental illness today. And uh, I believe that was exactly what Luther was suffering from. This self-condemnation that he knew that he was imperfect. He knew he was. He knew he was flawed. And he knew that God was perfect. And he couldn't, he couldn't get himself to the point where he felt happy and, and sure about this. So let's just finish off the Luther story. He is quoting from his own writings. I pondered night and day. Then I grasped that through grace and pure mercy, God justifies us through faith. 
Immediately I felt that I'd been reborn and that I'd passed through wide open doors into paradise. What did he got? Well, remember I talked about righteousness and I said that, um, that Assisi was righteous because she'd fulfilled the requirements. You know, she'd, she'd agreed to, to, to do. So what was it that made Abraham righteous? It was his faith. That's very clear. That's the whole point of the story. He believed God. He trusted God and God counted that as righteousness. And Luther realized all I have to do is to trust God. That's all I have to do. The, the being sinful and like that's the, God doesn't want me sinning, but that's not part of the covenant that's dealt with in Christ. And my agreement with God, my, my relationship with him is, um, being righteous. You know, often God, uh, as I'm preparing for a sermon, God, he must have a sense of humor because he decides to teach me something of, personally through what I'm preaching and I, I and I was I, yesterday morning I was working on this and I thought you know I've got to do a good job because this is such an important message I've got to do a good job I just felt God saying you know Andrew whether you do a good job or not that's not what I'm looking for I want you to trust me over this sermon I just want you to trust me and you know that's just such a weight off like of course I want to do a good job here I want to explain this to you but actually that's not what I'm being measured on. That's not what God desires from me. He's far more interested in whether I trust him than whether I fulfill all the requirements that I've set for myself or God has given me. So um, I want to ask the question, of course, how do you become part of this covenant? What do you do to become part so uh, Abraham's part in this covenant was he wanted to be brought into the covenant, of course. He wanted to be, and he trusted God. He believed God. I prefer the word trust because trust is a bit more of an active word. And um, in, in English, we have two sets of vocabulary. The vocabulary that's come from um, down through Anglo-Saxon, the vocabulary that's come through French. And often they are, one is more, the French one is more abstract and the Anglo-Saxon one is very concrete. So we have, for example, we have liberty from the, from actually I should say from the Latin rather, through the French, liberty. And then we have freedom from the Anglo-Saxons. They've got a different feel to them. And, and so we have believing, which is the one, uh, that, that is more abstract one, to believe, but we have to trust, which is a more concrete one. And, um, so, uh, so faith is actually the one that comes down through, uh, through Latin, uh, and Greek. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, classical one. But faith, but trust is a very concrete thing. Because whether you trust somebody is actually taken up with, like, is an actually something you have to do in a context. So he trusted God. And God says that if these two things are true of you and you ask him in prayer, he will make this covenant with you. That's all you have to do. You have to pray to God and say, God, I trust that I can give my eternal future to you. And I trust that your way is the way to life. And I want to follow you. I want to, I want to trust you with my life. And that is how God makes a covenant with you. The trust, though, trust is, it's not just an assent. Um, 
a few years ago, I had the opportunity to take a training course in, in California in a, um, a mountainous area just north of, of San Francisco. And uh, I made the arrangements online and I arranged to stay in this um, this uh, accommodation in a forested area and I paid my money online and they sent me a, um, a code for the door, um, combination lock, lock code and I got it and I thought well I, <laughs> I hope it's there. Uh, anyway I flew, I'd never been to California before, I flew to San Francisco, I, I took an Uber um, and uh, after maybe tw- uh, 20 minutes the Uber driver said oh this is an electric car I'm running out of battery, out you get. And uh, my worst experience with Uber. And he put me out of the side of the road. But anyway, I got another Uber. And he took me eventually up into the mountains. And there was this building. And I went and I put my combination in the door. And the keys came out and I was okay. But you know, I felt like, can I trust this? Because like, what's going to happen if I'm wrong here? I'm going to be stuck somewhere in a country that I, I don't live in, in an area that's not very populated with wild animals. And, you know, so there's a risk involved in trusting. So I've told you that story because to trust God isn't just a mental ascent. You know, I'm just, it's, I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to trust that this is going to have a good ending. And he is good. I'm going to believe that. And there's a risk involved in trusting. Because he is the one who, um, if, if, you, if, he's, if it turns out it's a lie, it's a hoax, then you're in trouble. But that is all God is asking of you today. That is all God wants of you. You think of what the things you have to do in this next week. You think of this next month, this next year. I don't know, some of you are studying, some of you have got work challenges. What does God want? God, more than anything he wants, anything else wants you to trust him. Now, of course, he wants you to do well. He wants you to, to honor him. He want, but, but those things are secondary to your fundamental relationship, which is trust him, give them to him. And I think that if we really got this, and, and I'm speaking myself here, it would lift so much pressure off us if we could walk in this as Abraham did. God is the one going between the pieces. He's done it. Like, I, I'm just, he, what was Abraham doing at the time? He was asleep. Uh, we don't have to do anything in this apart from trust him. So I'm going to summarize now, and this is my last slide here. God's requirement for you is that you trust him with your life. Do that, and he will take care of everything else. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to think of this visual that we saw. Partly I wanted it acted out because I want it in your memory. I want it burned in there because I want you to remember God is the only one who went between the pieces. God has done this for me. That enactment wasn't just for Abraham, because what Luther read in Galatians and Romans, Paul is very, very clear that what happened with Abraham was actually a picture of what happens with us. They're one. They're the same thing. Abraham was doing this as a representative of all those who believe, all the children of Abraham by faith. So I want you to keep that in your mind.
I want you to respond to this message, and I want you to think of areas that you are struggling with right now, where you are feeling that you're inadequate, you're not doing well enough, you're not enough, you're not good enough. And I want you to just give those to God and trust him. Not that it's automatically going to make you the highest performer, but actually that is much more important than whether or not you succeed at some of these things. So uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. Peter's got a driving test coming up at some point. <laughs> you know, God, it's great that he passes, and we're going to be praying that he passes, but you know what? Ultimately, it's vastly more important that he trusts God with his life than he passes his test. Sorry, I didn't ask your permission to share that beforehand. <laughs> um, so uh, next week, I'm going to share another prophecy from the Old Testament about the New Covenant that I don't think anyone else has seen. I'm going to do some research to see if anyone else has seen it, but I'm very excited about it because I think it gives us another dimension to the New Covenant, which really speaks very deeply about the intimacy of our relationship with God. But I'm going to share that next week. So that's a motivation to come back. Um, But you're under grace. You know, if you don't come back, then God still loves you. Uh, So let's. I'm going to pray with us now. And uh, maybe the worship team could come up right now while I'm just closing things. Uh, I'm just going to pray. And as I pray, I want us to engage together in, in trusting God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for doing this enactment with Abraham for our sakes. Lord, we thank you. Lord, and we pray that you would give us the faith to trust you the way that Abraham did to trust you and not to feel that we're failures, not to feel that we've let you down, but to know that what you require of us is simply to lay ourselves on you and to trust you. Lord, we pray. We give this to you. We give all our problems to you. We give our future to you. We give eternity to you, trusting that you will care for us in Jesus' name. Amen.